actually, all right, just Rich Sheridan introduced us. Let me have you introduce yourself. <laughs> it's easier for me to tell the story than you. Uh, what am I? I'm a co-founding partner of Zingerman's Community of Businesses in Ann Arbor, Michigan. All right. Well, and community of businesses, that sounds like that covers a lot of ground. What's, what's within the community? Uh, well, we're 37 years next month down the road from opening. We started in 1982 with uh, my partner, Paul Saginaw, and I with a little 1,300-square-foot deli. And uh, 37 years later, I don't know how many businesses we have, but they're all here in Ann Arbor area. Uh, we have a bakery, a creamery. A uh, little candy business. Uh, we have an event space in a 1830s barn and farmhouse that we've restored that we do weddings and corporate stuff like that. We have a Korean restaurant, uh, coffee roasting. We have a training business called Zing Train. Uh, we have a mail order business. And Zingerman's Roadhouse is a uh, sit-down restaurant that's all regional American food. And uh, I'm probably forgetting something, but that's a pretty good start. Oh, we have a food tour business. I apologize. We take people on culinary uh, tours. Oh, excellent. Well, for you, what, what's been, I don't know if secret to the success is, is the right way to phrase it, but let me ask this. What is different about Zingerman's? Everything. All right. I'm going to have you narrow that down just a little bit, Harry. Uh, um, I, I think, uh, I mean, in some ways, obviously, there's nothing really new in the world. So everything is just recombinations of existing approaches and, and work. You know, that's true with food and it's true with business philosophies, too. So in that sense, I mean, there's probably nothing new. And at the same time, I think the way we recombine things is probably pretty different than most places. Uh, I think the secret is there's no secret. Uh, the, the leadership book series that I've done and will hopefully continue to work on, uh, there's parts one, two, three, and four, and, uh, each essay in the books is entitled, uh, in quotes, a secret because everybody wants to know the secret, but there is no secret. We teach it to every employee that's here. Uh, but I think we're up to 49 secrets in the four books and then the new pamphlet just came out, which can add to the list and I got two or three more books outlined to, to come up with next, but I, you know, uh, what's different. Uh, we are open book management. Uh, we teach and practice servant leadership. We have a visioning process. I, I know that the term vision is commonly used, but the approach that we do the recipe that we use for it, uh, which I've written a lot about is pretty, pretty drastically different. Uh, you know, we're pretty non-hierarchical. All our meetings are open. We have managing partners in all the businesses. We use a consensus process for decision-making at the partner level. I could go on at great length. And then, of course, our food uh, and service, hopefully, are, are pretty special, too. So this is getting right down, uh, sounds like, to the philosophical level of, you know, how you're approaching business, how you're approaching leadership. And, yeah. it, you know, in fact, I, I was, you, you've recently done, I called it, I mean, I, I think you called it a pamphlet, but it, it's fairly dense for a pamphlet. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of information in there called the art of business. Uh, for, for you, what, what is that philosophy or that artistic approach to business and leadership? Well, it's, uh, 
the the pamphlet is based on on learnings from uh, part four of the guide to good leading, which is the power of beliefs in business, and that's actually very big. It's about six hundred pages, um, but in there is a self fulfilling belief cycle, which I learned from Bob and Judith Wright in Chicago. Uh, from their book, Transformed, and Bob can't remember where he learned it, so I don't know who to give ultimate credit to, but I give it to him since I learned it from him. But anyway, it's it's literally just what it sounds like, a self-fulfilling belief cycle, and it is playing out in all our lives all day long, uh, in our businesses, in our personal lives, in our you know, we'll work with customers, with products, with ourselves, etc. And, you know, what we believe changes our behaviors and it changes the responses and behaviors of the people around us. And what we believe also changes what we see uh, because there's a little filter that we all have where we will filter out all the information that doesn't fit what we believe and we will take in, in fact, actively seek out information that supports what we already believe and you know that reality of course is being played out every day but it's particularly uh, painfully evident in the national political scene right now because people read the same news story and arrive at 180 degree opposite conclusions but anyways on a more uplifting note uh you know i started to realize this after the book had come out and thinking about things more uh just you know if we if we think of ourselves uh, as artists, we, we might start to pay a little more attention because the reality of life is that a, a visual artist looks at things much more closely. A musician listens to sounds and nuance and rhythms much more uh, attentively. A, a poet looks at word choice much more consciously and, and that, you know, they're just paying a lot more attention and are a lot more mindful and caring about every tiny little piece of uh, work that goes into making their art. You know, because on a painting, the brush strokes in the background are as, really as important as the foreground because without the background, the foreground doesn't show up. So I just started to, to think about that more and more and to start to realize that if all of us would approach our lives and our, our organizations as if we were making art, then we would be a lot more mindful, a lot more caring, a lot gentler probably, and uh, a lot more generous in our, in our spirit. And that's really where that came from. You know, it's it almost sounds like a, a paradox on the surface when we talk about art and artistry and business and leadership. And yet I love the idea of putting these concepts together. And so where, where does things like, you know, in business, you often talk about standardizing things and putting structures in place. Yeah. And in art, I think of that as more like about soul and creativity and, in fact, almost the antithesis of standardization, right? Where you want that delight, and that surprise, or, or that thought well, that comes from it. Yeah, but I think if you have a business where all you've done is standardize, you probably don't have a lot of great long-term customers because <laughs> somebody's going to come along fairly quickly and come up with a way to do it, you know, more interestingly or better. So, there, you know, there's, there's nothing, I, I also write and I study the anarchists a lot, and there's nothing in either art or anarchism that's opposed to organization or structure. It's just designing them in creative meaningful ways, you know, in which the people who are using them participate in the design. So, uh, you know, I, I used to have believe that creativity would come best when you had no limits at all, but of course that turns out to be totally wrong. And actually people are the most creative when they have structure and framework. And uh, like the visioning process that we use 
the, the content is all inside out. It's all from your heart, from your soul, from your spirit, like you just talked about. But there's a very structured process through which to tap it. And, and the two actually come together most effectively in that sort of framework. So I think for sure, I mean, standard processes on, in our industry, sanitation, you know, is are critical. But trying to standardize recipes I mean, uh, for, for customer service, you know, or standardized cooking beyond a certain point is, is actually unhelpful. And that's, that's, you know, how we got industrial food. Uh, and that's how you get sort of like rote, scripted, you know, soulless customer service. So uh, in part one of the book, there's an essay on, on uh, systems, which is based on an article that was in Harvard Business Review a number of years ago. And it really resonated with me because they talked about four types of systems and and one of them is is basically a craft system you know and i would suggest customer service is a craft system i mean there's just no way that you can teach the person who's doing it you can teach them a lot about how to do it but there's no way you can script every little element of what's gonna what's gonna happen uh during the interaction because every customer is different every situation is different so we we do a lot of training on it but in the end of the moment end of the day at the moment that the customer service interaction happens it's really up to the artist in this case in place to be able to make something beautiful out of the experience now did you start off with the the intention of of doing things you know so unique and so differently did that evolve over time was that just a reflection of how you naturally operated anyway uh Probably yes to all of them. Uh, okay. I, mean, I can explain it infinitely better now, 35 years later. But uh, I, I think that, it, you know, I guess what I would say now, looking back, I mean, every human being is a unique person. And that means that each of us really, no, no one fully experiences what the person next to them, whether they like that person or they can't stand them, no one fully experiences what anybody else experiences. And I, I think great art whether it's business or, or poetry or music is always an expression of who that person is. And, you know, if you're in an organization like we are, it's a collaborative process, but that's true in a band also, you know, and I was just listening to an interview with the Irish uh, traditional band and they talked about, you know, by the time the song is actually played, they really can't even remember who came up with which note or which chord sequence because they've all worked on it together over time. And I think that's true for a collective, you know, organizational activity, too. Yeah, you know, one of the things I've always been curious about in maybe the band structure is kind of a good analogy there is how do you help your, your employees, you know, bring their whole selves and their creativity and their soul to it. And also, you know, understand how you need them to operate in, in order for the business to, you know, function to satisfy customers and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's all the things we're talking about. I mean, I think there's nothing I'm telling you now that we don't talk about with them. So uh, I think part of it is just treating people like the intelligent creative human beings that they are uh, and appealing to their intelligence and their, their spirit as opposed to most places which are sort of dumbing things down and operating with the what I would suggest is an inaccurate belief that frontline employees aren't supposed to make decisions because they're making decisions all day long. They just may not tell you about them. Uh, you know, so I, I, I think with that framework, one of the key pieces, uh, which I wrote about in part two of the, of the leadership series, is a, 
we, we really try to treat everybody like a leader and a business person from the minute they get here. And so, you know, whether it's a 16 year old bus and tables three days a week or, you know, a retiree or everybody in between, we're just teaching them how to lead. Yeah. So how does that show up? What does that look like when you've got that 16 year old busing tables? What, what does leadership look like for them and their role? Well, Peter Kestenbaum, whose work I really love, uh, inspired me a lot, says that leadership is going for greatness in everything you do. And I mm-hmm. think that's true. Uh, you know, what does it look like? It looks like they're making intelligent decisions. I mean, uh, they're collaborative. They're thinking about the customer. They're looking for ways to help each other. They're, you know, they have interesting insights into guest interactions or business levels, you know, just like people who have MBAs. It's just, it's just most people don't listen to them and don't talk to them. So they think it's only at this upper hierarchically significant level that people have those insights. But the reality is the conversation with the busboy, when you get him or, or her involved in a conversation and they have some context it's it's really not all that different like they have they have theories about why it's busy too (laughs) none of us really know yeah yeah well you know that this it it makes sense you know you if you spend any time reading business articles or posts or news you know there's just so much about authenticity and in helping people bring their whole selves to work, mindfulness, mm-hmm. all those approaches. And yet those seem to run very counter contrast to what we actually see on a daily basis, which feels, you know, very much like just commoditization of humanity. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, business gets done for, through and by people. So where, where do you think businesses disconnect from that? Like when you talk to people, they get, they get that everyone's got great ideas and great perspective and the the company benefits when people show up as their, their whole selves. And yet they don't do it. There does seem to be that disconnect. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, there's no one singular answer. Uh, Gustav Landauer, who was a very interesting, uh, German pacifist anarchist, early 20th century, uh, whose work also is quite inspirational for me. You know, he was asked, like, why do, if, if all this makes so much sense, why don't people do it? And he said, well, their parents didn't think free and their grandparents didn't think free, and so they don't think free. And I think that's the reality. You know, most of us are mostly thinking the way we've been trained to think. Uh, and the beliefs work of, of the last book is pretty significant piece. So if you, like, I honestly... I don't believe I'm any better than anybody else. I don't believe I'm worse than anybody else. I don't believe I'm any smarter than anybody else. So if you, if you treat everybody like they're going to contribute something really great and you believe they are, it, it increases the odds they'll contribute. And I've said stupid things too, you know, so it's, it's, it's not like there's any connection between hierarchy, experience level and creativity and insight, creativity and insight actually sometimes are inversely connected to hierarchy and experience because when we get higher up in the organization, our fears sort of block some of the, you know, crazy weird ideas that actually would be super helpful. Um, so I, I think beliefs uh, lead people, you know, they don't go to the, the guy who works on the back dock and say, what do you, you know, I'm worried about sales. What do you think we should do? But there's really nothing to lose by having that conversation only to gain because if, even if the guy in the back dock never thought about it, he's going to start thinking about it now and he might have some good ideas and you're paying him anyway. So why not use that? Why not use his ability? 
Well, yeah, I mean that that sounds just so so practical, common sense, and yet you know, it, it common sense rarely is we we so often miss right. it, and you know, it, it seems like you've really just thought about the world differently. I mean, the the people you've been mentioning, the names you've been mentioning, are much heavier on philosophers than business gurus. And so I, I'm just really enjoying how that has come together in, in order to create a very successful business. You know, when you when you think about beliefs, what is it that you, you wish people knew about it? Or, or what is the first thing that you try to teach them about it? Well, the first thing is I, we teach them that belief cycle because I never thought about it and I never knew about it. And I've read a lot of stuff and I've been doing this for a long time. So uh, once you start to realize that what you believe is about anybody, about yourself as a leader, about your kid, about your significant other, about trainees, employees, systems, business, uh, you know, all of that is basically much of the time it's, it's creating the reality that we're living in. So if you believe, which is a quite a common belief, I speak a lot and it's a common question, you know, what do you do about the bad work ethic of young people? Like, I don't see a bad work ethic in young people. And they're like, really? I'm like, well, I've seen some young people that work well. I've seen some that don't, but I've seen 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, and 70-year-olds that follow all the same patterns. I just don't, I don't see really any connection between age and ability to work. But if you, if you go into it with the belief that a 17-year-old is going to do bad work, then you're going to treat them, you know, poorly you're going to distance from them you're not really going to engage with them then they start to believe that there's no point in doing work other than to make a little money at which point they do really pretty mediocre work and it's self-fulfilling and and the leader goes this is even worse than i thought you know on the other hand if you start treating somebody like they're smart and start asking for their perspective you share some of your own concerns and ask for their input all of a sudden they start thinking and when they start thinking they start to bring insight and, you know, everybody knows something I don't know. So it seems silly not to tap into that ability that they have. Yeah, I think it was, uh, you know, speaking of philosophers, I was thinking of comedians as philosophers. And I think it was Lily Tomlin that said that reality is merely a collective hunch. Yeah. You know, when, we, when we think about beliefs and and yet we, we rarely step back and think, hey, this is something that I could change, you know, because it just evolves over time as we're raised and we grow up. Right. How, but that's the how, thing. how do you? It's yeah. Not, so how, it's not how do you, genetic. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know it's it's made up. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, all, in, it's all made up. In so there's a recipe in the book for how to change a belief. Um, but yeah, most of us don't realize we have them, and most of us don't realize we have the freedom to change them. Um, and that could be, you know. But part of what I realized in writing the book is that. I uh, started to look at beliefs as the root system of our lives because you can't see them, but everything that comes up above the surface is, you know, 100% correlated to what's going on below the surface. And then I started to, to group beliefs into three broad categories, uh, positive beliefs, neutral beliefs, and negative beliefs. And you don't have to be a farmer to figure out if, if beliefs are the root system, then negative beliefs are going to always produce negative outcomes. Uh, and, and that positive beliefs create positive outcomes and you can't create it's just impossible to create positive outcomes from negative beliefs right so once i started to realize that then of course we all have some negative beliefs i have some too and starting to realize that, that the choice is mine you know i can hold to that belief 
and continue to be mad about the negative outcome I'm getting, or I can explore ways to to change that belief. And that doesn't mean denying problems. It's just that you can have positive beliefs about problems and, and pursue a path of fixing something, or you could have a negative belief about a problem, you know, which feels good in the moment because you get to complain about it, but it doesn't actually do anything except make it worse. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, and you kind of uh, touched on what, what my next question was going to be around that is, I think a lot of people tend to confuse positive thinking for, for Pollyanna thinking, you know, just ignoring yeah. problems, pretending they yeah. don't exist. They do, but that's not really the point. I mean, I think uh, I'm sitting here with my good friend Melvin Parson, who's created a nonprofit in uh, Ypsilanti, which is the next town over called We the People Growers Association, and he's doing a lot of work to reintroduce uh, agriculture into the into the town. So, urban agriculture reintroduce agriculture into the African American community, which uh, systemically. Uh, Black people in the U.S. have been put, pushed out of agriculture. I mean, the numbers are mind-boggling in a negative way over the last hundred and something years. Uh, and then also to help people, uh, you know, getting out of prison, uh, find working uh, jobs where they can create a healthy living for themselves. And so, you know, he's acknowledging the problem, but he's turning it into a positive outcome. Hmm. I, I love that example. Uh, acknowledging the problem, turning it into a positive outcome. So in, in your, your own world here, as you take on, I guess, think, thinking through it and changing the beliefs and, or, or refocusing the beliefs, um, I guess that evolves over time. So, that, so this question may, may not work, but, you know, just wondering, so like what's next in your beliefs? Well, you know, what, what, what are you working on to evolve and change and elevate in your own thinking well i think just being mindful of this it's you know it's helped me to realize <clears throat> you know even in small ways i mean it's just like you know we all have frustrations with coworkers, so i can fall into it just like everybody else you know uh is number one number two is i guess realizing you know it's sort of obvious but uh it's very easy to bond with people over negative beliefs Mm. So it's easy to start complaining about your neighbor. It's easy to start complaining about somebody who doesn't agree with your politics. It's easy to agree to, to start bonding over complaining about a, a partner you don't work well with or your spouse or women or men or black people or Jewish people, whatever. I mean, and, and this is going on all the time. And so, you know, people bond over it, but all they're doing is putting more weeds in their garden and, you know, disciplining myself to stay out of those conversations is is challenging at times, you know, because I know instinctively that I can I can connect with the other person over it, but it doesn't actually create anything good to the contrary. It actually makes the, the weeds the roots of the weeds go deeper into the soil. Yeah, it's kind of funny when when you say that because it is so easy to bond over negative things. Oh, We've yeah. all got things that we could gripe about. You know that Brock Edwards guy? You could just no, just kidding. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, and and I've never thought about you know kind of the bonding over positive beliefs. Um, you know, c coming together around what you know what's going so well, and and I don't yeah. know why we don't more. 
Well, again, it's it's partly, it's a belief, right? So it's partly out of habit. I mean, I grew up, you know, in a nice middle-class educated family, but, you know, where they showed love and affection by telling you what you should have been doing better, which wasn't ill-intended, <laughs> uh, you know, but it, it didn't train me to focus on the positives that were all there too. Um, you know, and so I'm sort of in, in recovery from that for the rest of my adult life. And, you know, it's just, it's just teaching myself to see the beauty that's all around me, which, which is there, even when there's bad things going on. And I mean, that's a lot of the new pamphlet, you know, is to, to really find the beauty. Uh, Oscar Wilde said, you know, we're all laying in the same gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. And again, it doesn't mean there's not a lot of big challenges. There's, you know, we got the same organizational problems everybody else does, but it's just remembering to pay attention to, you know, to all the little things like the, the cup of Ethiopian coffee from our coffee company that I drank this morning. That was fabulous. Uh, sitting here with Melvin, uh, you know, there's, there's a ton of little wonderful things that are happening and it doesn't make the problems go away, but it helps me remember how lucky I am and or fortunate I am to be surrounded by so much great stuff and so much, so many cool people. And, and then also, you know, acknowledging the reality. It's not like I made it all happen myself, but it is work and it is conscious choices that have helped to, me to surround myself with so many great people. And then, you know, my work is to help them make their lives more rewarding too. So what, all right. What, what drives you forward? I mean, you know, running one business is enough to occupy anyone's time and you know, you've got a community of businesses and yet you're still peeling off time to write and talk to you books and pamphlets and talk to me and, you know, do, do all these things. Um, you know, what, what is that, that drive or that legacy that you're wanting to create or the difference you're trying to make? Yeah, I don't know if it's really a legacy, but I guess a legacy for better and for worse is sort of inevitable because we're all going to be gone and people are going to remember something. But uh, I, I think just, you know, to make a positive difference and to keep learning and growing uh, in the process is what it comes down to. So whether that's working with the food and, uh, you know, I was just emailing last night with my friend Sean Askinosi, who's down in Missouri that makes amazing chocolate that we sell. Uh, he's doing incredible work in the producing countries like in Tanzania and in uh, Ecuador and stuff. And, you know, it's, he's, he's using some of the philosophical stuff that we taught. He's created his own work. He's helping people to learn how to manage their own lives. So not to create charity, but rather to teach people how to be self-sustaining and help them see a better future and his essay in the new there's a couple essays actually in the new book and uh, beliefs about hope in the workplace and actually melvin who i just mentioned is in it and also sean because both of them are creating you know hope in, the, in, in, in their parts of the world and when people have no hope they never do good work <laughs> in fact they're actually very reckless and, and violence and, and antipathy and anger start to come out. You know, when people have higher hope, uh, they're much more likely to contribute positively, whether that's to our organizations and business, to our communities at large, uh, to their families or friends or whatever. You know, the, the idea of using business to to create hope, um, that makes sense. And, and again, you know, it's just something I haven't thought about in that context before. 
Yeah. Well, it's um, it's a huge thing because if employees have low hope, they do bad work. Yeah. And and yet a lot of us in, in, are unwittingly, you know, blocking out their hope uh, or crushing their hope. And we certainly, I know in hindsight, I can remember times where I did it. And it's not like I was trying to do that. It's just, you know, we behave in ways that are not always that helpful. And, you know, there are decades of learned behaviors that we slip into when we're not paying attention. And so, again, learning about the importance that hope has in everything. So people are more emotionally resilient when they have higher hope. People do better work. They're more uh, positive about organizational change. They have less uh, sick days, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, why would you not want to help build hope once you understand all of that? But most most places haven't even, like you said, it's not out of malice. They just never even think about it. Yeah. And yet it's free. Well, you know, you've... Uh, uh, say that again? It's free. There's no cost to there you go. helping build hope. And there's a lot of secondary negative cost to crushing hope. Because we pay people the same, basically, whether they're moderately engaged or whether they're really engaged. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I really appreciate the, the way the bringing out the humanity cycles back into better business results, which cycles back into bringing out the humanity even more. So you, you have written a lot and it, which book would you recommend people start with of yours? You know, well, I think it's, I tried to write the series so they can start wherever they want. Uh, part one, they're, they're written in order, but they don't have to be read in order. So part one, uh, building a great business is just what it sounds like. Some more organizational stuff. There's a bunch of essays on our approach to visioning, which is not at all how I grew up, but has been enormously transformative uh, in terms of my own life and our business. Uh, part two is on leadership. So it's got essays on servant leadership, which we learned from Robert Greenleaf, stewardship, which we learned from Peter Block, uh, our approach to energy management, which learned from my friend Anise Cavanaugh. Uh, etc. And then part three is on managing ourselves. So just what it sounds like, it's the work we all need to do, but hardly any of us want to. Uh, and then part four is what we've been talking about is on beliefs and, and again, not really religion, sports or politics, which are the three most commonly discussed areas of belief, but more beliefs about employees, beliefs about the marketplace, beliefs about our products, etc. And how, how that's really basically making our lives into what they are. And then the new pamphlet is on, as we talked about the art of business and just learning to really approach business as if we were making art and to look at systems design like art, to look at uh, every meeting, like we're making a stage play, you know, as a, a theater production uh, to, to notice the beauty and the nuance and, and to really be mindful about creating a business that's uh, reflective of ourselves in, the, in that little film I mentioned about the Irish musicians this morning. I was listening to it this morning, a friend of mine in Dublin, uh, uh, Ashlyn Rogerson, who owns Fumbly Cafe in Dublin, and she sent me this link because we were trading notes about Irish. I like Irish, old Irish music. And uh, anyway, there's a musician in there. I don't even know who it is, but he's talked about uh, he spent years having this uh, 10 string fiddle made for himself and uh, and he's talking about how he loves it and he said you know most instruments you sort of reach a wall where there's 
you know, there's nothing more you can get out of him. He goes, but with this, every time I play it, it brings me joy and it brings me new ideas. And I think that's really what I want the business to be able to do is every day it brings joy and it brings new ideas about how to do things differently and better. Well, Ari, if uh, that has been fantastic uh, conversation, I, I love the, I mean, you, you, like, like I mentioned earlier, you know, you, you approach it from a philosophical approach and definitely think about the world differently, but combined with that philosophy is, is a real practicality. Yeah. And yeah. Where, where can people find you? Well, right now I'm at the deli in the back corner table. Uh, and tonight I'll be on the, on the floor work in the dining room at the roadhouse. But, uh, they can find me personally at Ariat, uh, which is just A-R-I, ariatzingermans.com, and they can find all the books. And then also Zing Train, I mentioned, is our training business, and we teach training seminars on all of this stuff at zingtrain.com. And with the books, we're, we're sort of off the grid. I didn't really love the big publishing world, uh, so we actually do all the design here. We print them here in town in Ann Arbor, and we're, we're kind of off the mainstream distribution. But I like that because then I get to interact with people when they buy books and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I always ask all my guests if what would you um, what would you ask of the audience? You know, how can the listeners to this really help you out? Well, I think they can help themselves out, which helps me out, which is just to be, I, I guess, in the spirit of where we started this about the the, the new pamphlet being art. I mean, if people, it's up to them what their art is, but think most people who are making music or writing poetry or painting or whatever that you know they're going to do it in a caring way and so the more people approach their businesses where they're paying you know deep caring attention to the energy with which they treat the newest employee they have or the energy with which they interact with every client or customer uh or you know every little thing that they do it's going to be a more beautiful world and it may, it may sound naive, but I, I think really, you know, our society, our communities, our businesses are just made up of a million little interactions. And it's, it's nice to think big picture and I'm all about long-term visioning, but it's also all about what, the way I treat everybody I interact with, the way I treat myself, uh, the way I treat my girlfriend when I go home or how I, I deal with our dogs or what I cook for dinner. I mean, those things add up to make our lives. Well, this has been... Uh... I say fantastic. I mean, this could go on a long time and I do want to respect your time. And uh, so we'll end it here, but thank you so much for being a guest today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for doing what you do. Welcome to Imperfect Action. This is Brock Edwards. And today's guest is a little bit different. Uh, In fact, the topic is a little bit different because we really get into some what most people would think of as real cutting edge management right now today, you know, uh, non-hierarchical, servant leadership, real transparent open book management, consensus-based decision-making. And all of this comes out of, well, basically uh, restaurants. And so my guest is Ari Weinsvig. He is the co-founder of a community of businesses, really that got its start around Zingerman's Deli and grew from there and now is so much, so much more than that. And I was introduced to Ari through Rich Sheridan, the co-founder of Menlo Innovation. So if you listen to that episode, you know that he has a different approach to business and management and leadership and entrepreneurship. So this episode with Ari is a great episode. It takes just a couple minutes for us to really get into it. And in fact, you get the sense in 
of being in one of his restaurants because he's recording it from one of his restaurants. And so you, you get that little bit of a background ambiance there. He dives in and really combines a deeply philosophical approach with just a real practical way of doing things that I'm just enthralled by. So I'm excited to introduce it. I'm just going to stop my introduction now and turn it over and please dive in, listen to the episode. Just a little, just a little 